Daniel 9, verses 20 to 27. So remember that last week we went over the prayer of Daniel. And this week we have the answer uh, to Daniel's prayer. In verses uh, 20 to 23, we see Gabriel introduced, and then 24 to 27 is the answer. So I'm going to read through this, and then we will uh, jump in. So Daniel 9, verses 20 to 27, this is God's word. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God. While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood And to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. This is God's word. Uh, A really dense passage of scripture. This will be a bit of a a heavier um, passage, a good old-fashioned Bible study, so to speak. Um, One commentator, as I was reading through, said, um, reading commentaries on Daniel 9, 24 to 27 is like entering a bewildering maze. So many choices of ways to take, so many blind alleys, so many dead ends. And it's the first time in my preparation that I've ever um, done extensive reading and listening from various uh, preachers and commentators. And it's the first time where no one has agreed on everything. Everyone disagrees on something from all of the people that try and understand this passage, which this says nothing of the text itself as divinely inspired. Um, It is profitable. It is good to study. um, But we should realize that uh, those interpreting this agree on very little and we ought to have humility to approach this um, and still remember that there is good fruit to be had. This is Holy Scripture, which is uh, profitable and it will be edifying for us. So let's remember the context of Daniel 9. Uh, This section here, again, comes on the back of the prayer. And of course, Daniel's prayer 
is like a form of corporate confession. In, in verse 20, he's saying, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel. So his prayer that's going to be answered is to do with the transgression of Israel with their sins and uh, the fact that they are in open shame now. And Daniel is praying that God would cover their shame, that he would restore them. His prayer is at its core, God, forgive us, restore us back to our land, which is the place of your presence where we have your face shining upon us. Hence his prayer, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary. And as Daniel is praying from verse 21, we see Gabriel come in in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. And then in verse 22, Gabriel says, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out and I have come to tell it to you. For you are greatly loved, therefore consider the word and understand the vision. So remember, as Daniel is confessing his sin and the sins of his people and asking for restoration, this is Gabriel saying, here's an answer to your prayer, to your plea for mercy. Here is the response. And Gabriel's answer is 70 weeks or precisely 77s are decreed about your people and your holy city. And this period of 70 weeks or weeks comes from the word seven, and I'll explain that in a bit, but this period of 77s is the time period until God brings about six particular things. And we read those six particular things in verse 24. That is to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, Atone for iniquity, bring in everlasting righteousness, seal both vision and prophet, and anoint a most holy place. This is the answer. 77s before these things come about. Uh, this period of 70 weeks, as I said, is literally 77s. And the word for seven um, at its core um, means weeks, which is why we have weeks. And that's because... It's based off the pattern of creation, really, of six days of work and a seventh day. So the, the ultimate seven that we see established in Scripture is this period of seven days of creation, the seventh being the day of rest. But the common understanding of weeks in this context is years, because the period of seven is taken as one period of seven years. So we understand uh, the 77s is 490 years. Uh, and the reason is because of Leviticus 25 mostly, where God um, explains some things about Israel's calendar that are going to be based off these periods of seven. So in Leviticus 25, we read about this Sabbath year. And in Leviticus 25, God speaks to Moses and he says in verse 2, of Leviticus 25, when you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years, you shall sow your field, prune your vineyard and gather fruit. But in the seventh year, there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. So this is taking the period of seven to be six years of work and then a year of rest. And that's one period of seven, six years of work, one year of rest based on the pattern of six days of work and one, year, and one day of rest. Now, right after this, in Leviticus 25, right after God establishes this period of seven years as a period of seven, he says in verse eight, uh, he talks about the Jubilee year. 
The Jubilee year is this year of restoration that would happen once every 50 years. And the Jubilee year is based off the Sabbath cycle of seven years. So this is important to understand the 77s. In uh, Leviticus 25, when it talks about the Jubilee year, we read, you shall count seven weeks. So we have weeks there, but it's not the same word as the weeks we get in Daniel 9. I hope that's not too confusing. The weeks in Leviticus uh, 25 is literally um, seven uh, Shabbats. It's just Sabbaths. So seven Sabbaths of years. So you shall count seven Sabbaths, which we translate as weeks, of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks or Sabbaths of years will give you 49 years. It's basically saying, take this period of six years of work and one year of rest as one seven, make seven of those sevens, and you'll have 49 years, and then the Jubilee year will come, the 50th year. Interestingly, on the Day of Atonement, after the 49 years, on the Day of Atonement, the trumpet was supposed to be sounded and you would pronounce the year of Jubilee. Now, this becomes very significant when we come back to the context of Daniel 9, because Daniel's prayer is all about restoration. It's all about people who are exiled. Remember in the Jubilee, the promises of the Jubilee was that people would be returned to their land. Possession would be returned to its original owner. So Daniel here is praying for his people, Israel, and ultimately at its core, it's saying, restore us, cover our sins, cover our shame, restore us to a place of favor with you in our land. And that's what would come about with the Jubilee. People are restored to their original land. It's the year of the Lord's favor. And this is ultimately um, a theme, a significant theme of Daniel's prayer because Israel is not in their land. So I believe the overarching theme, this answer of 77s, this answer of 70 weeks is basically saying this is going to be like the Jubilee of Jubilees, just 10 lots of these Jubilees. So this is the answer that Gabriel gives. 77s based off this pattern that we see in scripture as saying 77s and the Jubilee of Jubilees will come. Just instead of 49 years, it's 490 years. You times it by 10 to make it the Jubilee of Jubilees. And it's interesting that if we keep with this Jubilee theme, you might be thinking of other times that comes up in Scripture. It's fascinating to remember that Jesus' first recorded sermon in Luke chapter 4 is him where he takes the scroll of Isaiah in Isaiah 61. And what does he say? He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight of the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. These are the Jubilee themes. And Jesus comes on the scene and says, I've been anointed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The Jubilee of Jubilees, restoration is coming. So I think this is the overarching framework that we need to rightly understand Daniel 9. The Jubilee of Jubilees, restoration is coming. People be, will be restored to their land. I don't think it's, uh, though it may contain events um, concerning the end of time, I think the emphasis is a messianic, like the emphasis is upon uh, the Messiah, the promised anointed one coming to bring restoration. 
And that's the thrust of the passage. So the answer for Daniel, interestingly, not only addresses Israel's exile, because remember, he's praying in a context, in a Jewish context, wanting the people of Israel to be restored to their land. And Gabriel's answer goes beyond what Jeremiah said, which was it's just 70 years. Now, Gabriel times like multiplies that by 10 and says in 77s, this will happen, which is restoration. So Gabriel's answer extends the scope of the restoration to not simply uh, be about the, the finish of Israel's exile once they are released from Babylon, because by all accounts, we can see that they never really uh, left exile. They never really regained uh, their sense of leadership. They were always under foreign occupation. It seems like what this is highlighting is that this extends the scope of uh, restoration to come to the greater exile of humanity's exile from God's presence, which is what Jesus brings about, where people can actually be brought in. So it extends the scope. It not only answers the question of Israel's exile, but as we'll see, it extends the scope to actually talk about humanity's exile from God's presence, to restore that. And we see this in these six promises in verse 24 that we read. These six promises clearly go far beyond Israel simply returning to their land. They describe reconciliation of sinful man with a holy God. They describe these beautiful promises that we have in Christ. So let's look at these six promises here in verse 24 and see how they point to this reconciliation that the Messiah brings. So if we group these into two lots of three, they're kind of neatly divided into two lots of three, where the first three are really to do with how God will make amends for the negatives or the wrongs of Israel. And then the second three are really how he'll bring about the positive fulfillment of his promises. So for the first group of three is really how God's going to make amends for the wrongs of Israel. Firstly, to finish the transgression. Um, for the sake of time, we won't go too deep into this, but it's interesting to note that this is to finish the transgression. It's the only one out of the list here, which actually has a definite article to say to finish the transgression. I think the clear meaning of it really is that it's saying that the transgression will be over. The, the wrong of God's people will be finished. And this is linked to then the next one, where he says to put an end to sin. He will do this by putting an end to sin. The word is literally to seal up. So interestingly, if you look at the uh, fifth promise here in verse 24, where it says to seal both vision and prophet, that word for to seal is the exact same word that's used to put an end to sin. So it's like saying to seal to seal up sin or sins. And that's what this is saying because sealing carries this idea of nothing more being added in. If you seal something up well, nothing more will be added in. So it's saying to put an end to sin by sealing up sin, no more sins to be added in. So you get this idea of sealed. Uh, thirdly, atoning for iniquity. Atonement is, of course, the idea of reconciliation, making at one meant. We, we get the word from at one meant. So, so making amends, it's always to do with um, a, usually a sacrificial substitute to then appease uh, wrath and, and, and atone for a wrong, to actually cover a wrong. 
And all of this, I believe, is seen in the cross of Christ, where in the cross, he who knew no sin became sin. And as Christ is there on the cross, God condemns sin in the flesh. So God in Christ reconciles us to himself through Christ. He makes us one in Christ. It's like the true day of atonement. Of course, what the day of atonement was pointing to was this day where Christ would become both the scapegoat that if you remember on the day of atonement, the scapegoat is taken outside of the camp, just as Jesus was taken outside of the gates of Jerusalem. And then he is also the sacrificial, sacrificial substitute where the blood would cover the sins of the people. And Christ fulfills the day of atonement because he becomes the sacrificial substitute to make us one, to make at one meant, to make us one in Christ. And this was the answer to Daniel's prayer. Daniel's prayer was, could Israel, as God's people, actually be reconciled? Could we? Could God cover over our sins? Could God cover over our sins and the transgression and restore us? And God's answer is yes. But it both, as I said, it extends the scope of Daniel's prayer to go to this fullness of God's promises where the Gentiles are actually brought in. Forgiveness and reconciliation will come by the blood of the Messiah and it will extend much further than simply ethnic Israel. It will go much further than simply ethnic Israel heading into their land. But actually, these promises are all, all point to what Christ brings about. We'll see this more as we look at now the three positives. So the three positives here in verse 24. Everlasting righteousness. God will bring everlasting righteousness, a righteousness that will never be taken away, this age of righteousness where it is a complete righteousness uh, that is eternal, that will never actually go away. And this was the problem of God's people, of course. They possessed no righteousness. You and me do not have any righteousness in and of ourselves because at our core we are sinful. But by the work that we have just seen, in the three promises earlier, God brings a righteousness that is alien to us, as Luther said, an alien righteousness because of the atoning work of sin. So we receive a righteousness, which is God's declarative act, declaring us right, not only that our sins are covered, but it is as though we've done everything right because he declares us right. And so as uh, Paul says, a righteousness that does not come through the law, but that is on the basis of faith, a righteousness that depends upon faith. And he says, that's the righteousness that we have, a righteousness in Christ. This is the righteousness of God that is revealed in the gospel, in the good news of Jesus Christ, a declarative righteousness that is everlasting, that we possess by virtue of being brought in to this promised Messiah, being brought into Christ. Secondly, or fifthly, how are you looking at it? Secondly, in this, third, in this second lot, sealing a vision and prophet. Remember, this is the same word as to put an end to sin. So what does it mean to seal up vision and profit or to, in a sense, put an end to vision and profit? If we understand that this seal carries the idea of not allowing anything else to come in, then clearly the promise is that there will be a full and final revelation where nothing more will be added in. 
vision and prophet, the purpose of vision and prophet will be sealed. Now, hopefully your mind goes instantly to Hebrews 1, 1 of thinking of how does the writer of Hebrews begin the letter of Hebrews? Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Jesus is God's final word. There are no more prophets, capital P, prophets. Jesus is God's final word. This is what the author of Hebrews is saying. This is what it seems like Daniel is saying, uh, or Gabriel rather, that vision and prophet is sealed up as though Jesus becomes the final word of God to all humanity. He is God's final revelation because he is God. Jesus is God revealing himself. He's the culmination of what all of the law and the prophets were pointing to. So Jesus becomes God's final word. Vision and prophet is sealed up. Thirdly, to anoint a most holy place. The language here is literally to anoint the holy of holies. So that's what this is saying, to anoint the holy of holies. And uh, you might know the word for anoint is just the same word as Messiah, but in verb form. So like to Mashiach, the holy of holies. So that's what this is saying. And uh, the word for anointed one here could just as easily be translated as Messiah. Uh, so here, anointing a most holy place. The holy of holies was, of course, the most special place within the tabernacle and the temple. The place reserved for God's presence, for the Ark of the Covenant where only the high priest could go in once a year. And in Hebrews 9, the author talks about this and gives this description of the temple or tabernacle and specifically talks about the Holy of Holies, where the high priest could go in only once a year. And then he says in verses 11 and 12, when Christ appeared as a high priest, he entered once for all into the holy places, which in the original language is literally the Holy of Holies saying Jesus entered into the Holy of Holies when he appeared. So in Christ, God anoints the Holy of Holies because the anointed one, the Messiah, enters into the Holy of Holies. And in that place, atonement is made. So in Christ, we have everlasting righteousness. In Christ, we have God's final word to humanity. In Christ, we have access to God's presence because he has entered into the Holy of Holies. The curtain is torn. We actually have access now. So this is, I believe, the overall purpose of the 70 weeks, to actually point to the Messiah, to point to the answer of Israel's problem and the answer of humanity's problem of being exiled from God. Jesus is God's final answer to Israel's transgressions to the point where he lives the life that Israel was supposed to live. Jesus's life mirrors much of Israel's. He is sent off to Egypt as a son and then it is called out of Egypt. And interestingly, Matthew takes the passage that Hosea gives to Israel being called out of Egypt. And Matthew says this was fulfilled when Jesus returned with Mary and Joseph out of Egypt. Jesus is baptized. And then he spends 40 days of testing in the wilderness, just as Israel went through the Red Sea, which Paul refers to as a baptism. And then what do they do? They enter into 40 years of testing in the wilderness. When Jesus is tested for his 40 days, he is quoting from the parts of the Torah that Israel failed to uphold, but Jesus upholds them in his 40 days 
and nights of testing. Jesus becomes the answer to Israel's transgression and disobedience. The Messiah comes to bring about restoration. And in doing that, he reveals the wonderful mystery of the gospel, which as Paul says in Ephesians 3, is the Gentiles are then brought in so that we become members of the same body. He says, partakers of the same promise. We are brought into Christ, not because we replace, but rather we are brought into this body of God's chosen people because we are grafted in to the same body and we receive these same promises. So this answer to Daniel's prayer extends far beyond, I believe, what, we, what he would have thought. It encompasses the answer to Israel's exile and it points to humanity's exile from the presence of God, that we now have access to God's presence because the Holy of Holies has been um, anointed. And now that's why the New Testament refers to us as a temple of the Holy Spirit, a place where actually God's presence is with us by the Holy Spirit. So that's the overarching theme. Now we face even more difficulty as we then look at how these 70 weeks break down. So if there's not already disagreement over some of the interpretation now, we are sure to have a significant amount of disagreement as we look at how these 70 weeks break down. Uh, so let's remember to try to keep the overarching theme of this idea of restoration, the Jubilee of Jubilees. Uh, God's answer through Gabriel to Daniel is concerning restoration, forgiveness of sins, atonement. So let's look at verse 25, Gabriel's answer. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. Now, most of you probably have an ESV Bible and we mostly use the ESV Bible because it's a good translation for most of the time. Uh, but this is a, one of the few occasions where I think the ESV makes it a bit unhelpful as we understand this passage. This is where a bit of uh, grammar comes in. So the ESV makes the period between the seven sevens and the 62 sevens seem really distinct. So that we read, understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks, full stop. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again. I think this makes people unnecessarily focus on the difference between the seven and the 62 as they're very far apart and even leads some people to look at this and the coming of an anointed one as something that might happen after the first lot of seven, but before the 62, so that there's two different anointed ones here. But I don't think that's uh, the case. I think that it's better to keep these two together. And there's other translations that take this. It all comes down to a bit of Hebrew grammar in how you translate avav, which is just this word that basically can mean and or but or then, has a whole host of meanings. It's the most simple, it's just a one letter word in Hebrew. And uh, it really, I think in this case, should keep the seven sevens and the 62 sevens together. So the New American Standard Bible translates verse 25 like this. So just very carefully pay attention. This is how they translate this passage. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, 
There will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat even in times of distress. So that's really keeping them together. There's gonna be seven sevens and 62 sevens. Now the question is, if they're together, why separate them? Why doesn't he just say 69 sevens? And then one, you probably have a whole host of questions. Why not make this much easier for us to understand? Why keep the seven sevens and the 62 sevens separate? I believe that it's simply to mark that there will be a period of seven sevens to restore Jerusalem to a functional state, followed by a much longer period until the Messiah comes. And interestingly, as we think about um, the years, although I don't specifically think that this is giving a precise, though many do see this as giving a precise list of 490 years, I see it as uh, more symbolic, but I think that God can give something symbolic and still hold to a time period, but it's more of a ballpark figure. But I think that the seven sevens, which would make about 49 years, is actually the period of time that it took to restore, particularly the temple. Think of Jesus actually saying to the, to the Jews, um, destroy this temple and, I'll, and I will rebuild it in three days. And they say, but it took us 46 years to do that. And if you think about laying a foundation, it might take a few years. So you can see that probably the temple and a lot of Jerusalem took about 50 years to restore. So I think the seven sevens wants to keep them together, but saying that this period of time of restoring Jerusalem will take approximately seven sevens, but then there'll be a much longer period of time before the Messiah comes. So it highlights these distinct marks within the period of 69 sevens that should be taken together. Um, within this period, they should be taken together to see that the ultimate promise here is that at the end of the 69 sevens, the final seven will come where the Messiah will eventually bring about the Jubilee of Jubilees, where the Messiah will announce restoration. And Jesus comes and says, I've come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, there are a few theories on when this word goes out. And if you have um, like 600 hours, you could read through a bunch of the theories there. Uh, for the sake of time, um, main ones are Cyrus in, in the 530s BC when he releases the Israelites from exile. Darius a few decades later in Ezra 6. A lot of people, uh, well, not a lot. There are definitely people who think Artaxerxes um, in around 458 BC because that fits um, if you sort of are going off a calendar that we know of um, with his decree to then the coming of the Messiah. But I would say that by far the most prominent decree throughout scripture is that of Cyrus to rebuild the temple. Cyrus is literally the anointed one that uh, Isaiah 45 refers to. Uh, it is his proclamation that the Chronicler finishes with in 2 Chronicles 36, which is all about uh, restoring the temple and it's his uh, Cyrus's proclamation at the end of 2 Chronicles that is mentioned there about restoring and rebuilding. Ezra 1, where Ezra is all about restoring and rebuilding, begins with Cyrus's decree. So I think Cyrus is by far the dominant figure with this decree going out to at least restore uh, the, the house of God in Jerusalem. And you think if you're going to restore the temple, you're going to restore the city. You're not just going to have a temple restored and then just desolation everywhere else. There's going to be restoration in other areas. So Cyrus's decree in 538, 539 BC seems to be the word going out. And from this word going out to restore and build Jerusalem, 
to the coming of a Messiah. Again, remember that you can translate anointed one with Messiah, but we have other times in scripture where Messiah is used to describe, as I just mentioned, Cyrus in Isaiah 45 is described as a Messiah because Messiah can mean the Messiah, but it can also just mean an anointed one, someone whom God has particularly chosen for a task. Uh, but I think it's helpful to actually have a translation of this as Messiah rather than anointed one. So from the going out of the word to build Jerusalem to the coming of Messiah, seven and 62 sevens, which is the time period before the final week where we are looking for the Jubilee of Jubilees to come about. And then in verse 26, we then have this period after the 69 sevens. This is where the anointed one, the Messiah, is to be cut off and shall have nothing. Now, this uh, must refer to the cross, keeping a consistent flow through with the Messiah being cut off, especially because this word for cut off is used with covenant. So whenever you would make a covenant in Israel, the literal uh, translation in Hebrew is to cut a covenant. That's how you make a covenant. Remember in Genesis 15, in the Abrahamic covenant, what happens there in that covenant ceremony? Animals are cut in half because you're cutting a covenant, they're placed, and then the covenant partners are supposed to walk through the middle, and it's this sign of if you break the covenant, you will end up like these animals cut in half. You're going to be cut off. But interestingly, God is the only one who walks through in that covenant there. But certainly there's that picture of being cut off in the covenant because there's other words that describe being cut off that are used far more frequently for someone being cut off, cut out of the camp, cut off from society. But here it is the word where you get allusions to a covenant. So this is the Messiah being cut off on the cross. And in doing that, we know that the Messiah obviously brings about the new covenant in his blood. He talks about that. Now, in verse 26, we have a, a very difficult passage. When you get to the second, the second half of verse 26, rather, and the people of the prince who is to come, this is like one of those adventure books that you had when you were younger, where you, you, you sort of have two options, and then the, the different option you take will take you on a dramatically different end. There are a few parts in Scripture where there's debate about whether a person is the Christ or the Antichrist. And you can't tell which one it is. And there are interpretations that will see uh, this prince as the Christ or the Antichrist or some Emperor Titus, some other figure. And there's a lot of debate about this. So the two main views on when we think about who are the people of the prince and particularly who is this prince that has people who are going to then destroy the city and the sanctuary. And the two main paths is that this prince is the same prince as verse 25, the Messiah, given that prince is linked to uh, the Messiah there. Or the second path is that this is a destructive ruler who follows the path of Antiochus Epiphanes, the Roman general, Titus, um, and possibly even as an antichrist figure. And these are the two paths uh, that you have to take, one of which. Now, I believe that the prince here in verse 26, uh, the second half, is the same prince of verse 25, the coming of an anointed one, a prince. And I've got three main reasons for that. 
The first reason is a grammatical one. The word for prince in verse 25 and verse 26 is the exact same word. It's only used one other time in Daniel, and that is in Daniel 11:22, where it talks about a prince of the covenant in direct opposition to Antiochus Epiphanes, which I think is an allusion to um, the kingdom of darkness against the kingdom of God. Um, the word prince uh, is used many other times in Daniel, but there's a different word used for it. And sometimes it can refer, and in fact, it's used many times in the Bible, a far more common word. And sometimes it can refer to a prince who's a godly leader. Other times it can just refer to anyone else. So next week we'll go through chapter 10 and it talks about the prince um, of Persia or the prince of Greece as these sort of figures. That's the different words, sarat, uh, which is used um, uh, in... Um, those contexts where it has a whole host of meanings. But this particular one here in verses 25 and 26 is the same word. And I would say because of the infrequency that it is used, it seems unusual to use the exact same word in a, in, within the space of a sentence to refer to someone different when you have another option for a word to really contrast the two princes. So it seems unusual to use the exact same word, which is clearly linked to the Messiah, the anointed one, and then uh, keep that word to describe someone completely different. The second reason, when you think about that and you think, well, what does that mean for the people of the Messiah destroying the city and destroying the sanctuary? The reality is that it was ultimately the transgressions of the Jewish people that led to Jerusalem's destruction. It was the result of of the Jewish people's uh, disobedience that led to their exile. It wasn't like the Babylonians were just stronger and God had lost control. No, they had rebelled. They failed to uphold their part and God exiled them using uh, using the Babylonians. And it was the result of their disobedience that led to Jerusalem being destroyed the first time. It was the people of the Messiah That is his own people where Jesus says, I came for the lost sheep of Israel who ended up demanding that he be crucified. It was his own people that ultimately rejected him and demanded his death. And if you think of the words of Jesus right before he goes to the cross, where he's lamenting over Jerusalem and he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have longed to have uh, gathered your children together as a hen, as a mother hen gathers her brood but you were not willing. And then he says, see, your house is left to you desolate. So he says, because of your stubbornness, Jerusalem, your house is left to you desolate. Now, what does this say the people of the prince will do? The people of the prince will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood and the end shall be war. Desolations are decreed. So because of the stubbornness, of the very people, the, the primary people, in a sense, that Jesus was coming to save, the lost sheep of Israel, Jerusalem, in the end, is left desolate and destroyed. Now, the third reason that I have for seeing the prince as the same prince as the Messiah is that this makes better sense of verse 27. Now, we're, we're, we're kind of landing the plane, like we're coming in for descent. So that's just to, to, to focus because this is heavy, but we are starting to land the plane. In verse 27, we read of someone making a strong covenant with many for one week. So who is the one who makes the covenant? 
Now, the word is literally to strengthen a covenant. So it carries the idea of strengthening a covenant that's already in place. It's not the same word as cutting a covenant, that is establishing a covenant. It's the word of strengthening a covenant. So it's as though we are talking about a covenant that's already in place. And I believe it makes the most sense to see this covenant as the covenant that the one who is cut off brings about as he cuts the new covenant by his blood on the cross which I believe is actually the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise, the Abrahamic covenant, where God says, in you, all the nations will be blessed and the promise will come to your seed, to your offspring. So Christ strengthens the promise to Abraham and his seed because he is the seed. He is the actual seed And we in Christ, as Paul says in Galatians, become partakers of that promise because we are brought in to Christ, into the seed. So we receive the promise to Abraham by virtue of being in Christ, that is the seed. So Christ strengthens the covenant with many for this period of seven. Now, this is where I think it's more helpful and this is where there are differing opinions on this. And I I must admit that I would... um, I don't hold to this absolutely tightly, but I see it makes sense from the other passages that we have in particularly apocalyptic literature of these periods of seven, where you often see that the period of seven is more to do with like an age or a paradigm rather than specifically seven years, though it could be seven years. Um, So we see that this covenant is strengthened within this period of seven. And if we see this period of seven as referring to completeness, seven is the ultimate number of completeness, then we see that the Messiah strengthens his covenant, which will last for a complete period of time, this covenant period. And this then, I believe, makes sense. And here's where we're really coming down to land on this last passage, on this last verse. We have this time period of three and a half years where there is the end to sacrifice and offering. The new covenant that Christ brings, though it's the new covenant, the reality is it's not as if God's plan A failed and this is plan B. Of course, it's his main and sole promise. So the new covenant is actually where we become partakers of the promise given to Abraham and to his seed. Rather, the covenant that we have in Christ becomes the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise where he would be the father of many nations through his seed. And then when we think of seed, we then have allusions all the way back to Genesis 3.15 where what's the promise when the world um, goes to corruption? A seed will come. And it will be the seed who is Christ who would bring redemption. So let me try and wrap this up. So if this last seven, this period is really highlighting this complete period of a covenant, then it makes sense to think about the three and a half years as this half period within that seven, this half period of completeness, where ultimately 
we are brought into the church age, whereas the, the, we receive the end of sacrifice and offering because you think of sacrifice and offering predominantly in terms of obviously Jesus doing away with sacrifice and offering because there's the once and for all sacrifice. And in this period of three and a half years, we exist in this half complete period on the other side of the covenant being brought about, which is the other side of the Messiah. And we exist in this half period of completeness while awaiting for the Messiah's return. So it is a figurative period that refers to the time of the church's witness in the world. And the last place I'll go to to really demonstrate this, because at the moment I think it may sound a bit uh, strange, but in Revelation, John, the author, borrows a lot of language from Daniel. And there is this time period that's brought up again and again. And it's three and a half years, but he chooses to bring it up in all these various ways. 42 months, 1260 days, time, times, and half a time. They're all saying three and a half years. It's all this half period. So if you do have your Bibles, turn to Revelation. And in Revelation chapter 11, this is like the hinge point of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 11, we have... uh, This picture of uh, the temple of God being measured, which is this idea of sealing uh, the altar and those who worship there. But then the main verse I want to go to is 11.3, where we read about uh, these two witnesses. I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now, two is often the number of faithful witness in the Bible. So you think of uh, Elijah and Moses, as often referred to as the, the law and the prophets coming together, they are sort of the culmination of the law and the prophets. You think of every matter must be established by at least two or more witnesses. Two becomes a number of faithful witnesses. Even looking at the letters to the churches in Revelation, in chapters two and three, we have seven churches. This again, seven. What's the fascination with seven? Completeness of churches. And yet within those seven churches, there are only two that are really faithful. Smyrna and Philadelphia do not receive any rebuke. They are the faithful churches. So you have this picture here of these two witnesses prophesying for 1260 days. Then move to chapter 12. We have this picture of the woman and the dragon. In uh, the woman and the dragon, this is quite simply referring, it's an allusion to Israel as the same identity that Joseph gives in his dream of the sun, moon and stars. And you have this woman who gives birth to one in chapter 12, 5, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Clearly, the Messiah gives birth to the Messiah through Israel would the Messiah come. And then this woman flees into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Exact same time period again, three and a half years. Then after this, from verses 7 to 12, we have this picture of Satan being cast down in a form of defeat. And there is a voice in heaven crying in verse 10 saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. So this picture of actually salvation coming and the kingdom coming in this period. Then verse 14, the woman has given, was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent 
that is this um, this idea of a demonic uh, the devil um, the woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time times and half a time again that's three and a half years so we already know that she flees into the wilderness for three and a half years. You've already said that, John. But then again, there's this picture and there's another period of three and a half years where she flees into the wilderness again for a time, times and half a time. It's three and a half years. And then the last one in chapter 14, we have this picture, uh, rather chapter 13, sorry. Uh, we have this picture of the beast. And in uh, chapter 13, verse 5, this beast is given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it is allowed to exercise authority. Notice that it doesn't have complete authority. It's a borrowed authority. It's allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. Again, three and a half years, the same period. It's all the same period of this half completeness. So the two witnesses the number of faithful witness, the woman who gives birth to the one who rules with the nations, but then as the child is swept up to heaven, the woman remains and she flees for three and a half years. And then this beast who is allowed to exercise authority against God's followers, it all happens for this half period of time, for this half period of completeness. And remembering that the letter of Revelation is written to post uh, cross Christians who are in a persecuted area, calling them to faithfulness, calling them to endurance, endure through this period. So I believe that the three and a half years is a picture of this half completeness of the um, actually contested and persecuted church that is called to faithfully go forth and continue their witness in this period of time, this half period of the covenant where we continue to go forth. And um, if you want to do extra reading on that, G.K. Beale, I think, is a, um, a helpful commentator on that. But again, this is very much in the area of disagreement. And this is how I see uh, this passage and make sense of um, the words of John in Revelation. We have this constant theme of the same period of time of three and a half years which seems to be used in apocalyptic literature to refer to this paradigm, this age, as numbers are often referred to. And if you think about <laughs> the history of the church, the history of the church is one of uh, constant persecution and constant revival. You can literally find a martyr, someone who was killed for their faith in Christ for every single century of the last 2000 years. You can also find pockets of revival in almost every single century through the past 2000 years. There's just this contested reign and yet the gospel, think about the first three centuries of the church. Revival happened and gospel spread because Christians were killed, because they were just, you know, fiercely persecuted. And you have this beautiful picture of persecution and yet endurance from Christians and God bringing about his purpose through that. The gospel advances forth under its contested reign toward its inevitable victory. And whilst we face the resistance of the kingdom of darkness, while we face the resistance of the evil one, we take comfort in knowing that the decreed end is already determined, which is 
um, the last bit of verse 27. Abominations, uh, on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. And this could refer to Titus where we see in AD 70, the temple being destroyed, could refer to, um, I, I believe, uh, both in the sense of Antiochus Epiphanes and Titus just form this pattern for the end time man of lawlessness to finally be uh, revealed within this age. But the reality is, and the comfort that we should take is that we are called to faithfully go about our task of witnessing, of enduring amidst this constant persecution, amidst this contested reign, as we witness to the crucified Messiah who brings about the cleansing of sin, the atonement of sins, who brings about everlasting righteousness, who is God's final word to all humanity. So there's much here, and again, this was a, a much heavier sermon, um, but it's helpful. Uh, it's scripture that is profitable, and I hope that it encourages you to dig deep into this passage and to come uh, to your own conclusion as well on some of these finer details. Again, the overarching theme, which we can take comfort in, is that God's answer to Daniel, when he was in a place of desolation, when he was in a place of exile, is that restoration is coming restoration is coming 77s there's a god determined period it's not like god is waiting and he's sort of thinking i wonder when i'll bring restoration he knows exactly when he is going to bring about the fullness of this where we will experience an even deeper reality of all these wonderful realities that we have now of righteousness of actually being able to stand before god as right of uh, sin being atoned for and where we will experience that apart from the presence of sin, where God will finally restore all things in the new heavens and new earth. And we take great comfort in that. So let me finish with praying. Um, and then we might actually uh, sing our song and then we will take the Lord's Supper to finally finish. So I'm going to pray and then we'll sing. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that um, it is the glory of God to conceal a matter and the honor of kings to search it out. And we have the privilege of searching out your word in these uh, mysteries that we, we do hold um, in one sense loosely because we have humility to know that we simply can't know with absolute precision a lot of these details. Yet we know in your word everything, absolutely everything necessary for salvation. We know it very clearly. So may we rejoice in that and we take great comfort from your word and may you continue to instruct us as a community of followers of Jesus who's, who want to hold your word very, very highly. Please lift up our hearts now as we sing, there is a redeemer, as we remember that there is a redeemer, there is someone who will redeem us from the stain of sin, the one whom we long for to finally return, where you, Jesus, will pierce the sky and we will be with you forever and there will be no more sin. Help us to fix our eyes upon that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.